0: Be able to bite off verses 1 to 10, but the more I got into it, I felt like I would be shortchanging you all in or, uh, if we were to breeze too quickly through. So we're just going to go through verses uh, 1 to 5, but we'll begin by reading the first 10 verses. And just by way of introduction to this passage once again, we're remembering, we're remembering that we are coming just out of chapter 1, and this passage we're looking at tonight is coming on the heels of Paul's instructions about godly church leadership. He wants elders established in order to mitigate the disastrous effects of false teachers who are not only subverting the truth, but just living such recklessly immoral lifestyles that are so contrary to the gospel of God. And that chapter ended in saying that these people, these false teachers, profess to know God, but deny him by their works. That is, their walk doesn't match their talk. But this chapter is going to come and switch directions for how Titus should, on the contrary, Teach the church um, in a way that accords with godliness. And so this is really a great parallel to what we heard this morning about um, having our manner of life, our walk, worthy of the gospel. That's what Titus is instructed to teach the church. A way of life, a walk, that does match this profession of faith. And so I'll start reading from uh, chapter 1, verse 16 to 2.10. This is God's holy word. Uh, Speaking of the false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And we'll stop there. So the instructions in verse 1 comes, Titus is instructed, but as for you, Titus, a contrary to these false teachers, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Remember, we discussed how sound doctrine is that healthy doctrine, that gospel teaching that produces healthy gospel living. He's teaching sound doctrine, um, a distinctly Christian way of life that accords with the Christian faith. He says, uh, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And this word accords here is really interesting and I think might give us a theme for this passage. Uh, This word accords is kind of a word that more means uh, befits or becomes or is seemly. It's used in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 to refer to how women ought to adorn themselves. He says your your adorning shouldn't primarily be um, with ornaments, braided hair, gold, all these things, but with what accords with or what is becoming of women who profess godliness, good works. So when Paul is teaching Titus this, he's saying that there is a way of living that fits or accords with sound doctrine. And that's really the theme of this whole book, that there is a way to live that is, as we heard this morning, walking worthy of the gospel. It accords with our Christian identity. And this passage closes in chapter 10, saying, so that by obeying God, in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this distinctively Christian way of life not only accords with and befits the gospel, but it also adorns the gospel. So that it's good for us, it fits us, but it also presents the gospel as beautiful before a watching world. We're to walk through life as if we're wearing a Christian clothing, something that reflects Christ. Uh, that we carry with us everywhere we go. And a clothing that fits. That's seemly. It fits our identity. Uh, we, we all know that uh, when we're picking out clothes, we want we clothes that fit, right? And if you've ever, say, gone looking for clothes, you often go with maybe your spouse or kids. You go with your parents. And, and, we, and we try them on, and we're like, ah, oh, does this fit? Is it is it too tight? Is it too loose? Is this maybe too short, too long? Because when your clothes don't fit... Um, not only is it uncomfortable for you, but it also is unseemly usually to the world. And not only do we want clothes that fit our, ourselves, but we also want clothes that fit our vocations. You know, if you work in an office, you're not gonna wear pajamas into work. It's, it's unfitting, it's unbecoming, it's unseemly. And we also, you know, we wanna wear clothes that befit our age. Uh, I don't know if you, if you ever remember ever like, Criticizing your parents, being like, mom, like, mom, dad, I think you're trying to dress a little bit too young here. Like, this doesn't, you know, you should dress your age like maybe you shouldn't try to take my shoes and wear them. They're just not gonna fit you in your stage of life. Right? We want to wear clothes that that fit ourselves, fit our vocations, fit our age. And so it is in the Christian life. There there is a fitting Christian garb that not only befits our identity as Christians, but there are distinct ways of being in this world that are different for different demographic groups and the beauty of this passage is that paul um, provides distinct directions to diverse demographic groups he addresses men and women he addresses old and young he addresses slaves and free and so i really think part of the beauty of this passage is that we're taught that christianity the way we live is not going to be exactly the same for each one of us But it's going to be different depending on our gender, our uh, stage in life. And yes, there are great overarching commands, things that for sure apply to us all. But what's particular to us in our groups is that in different stages of life, different roles, we have different responsibilities in different seasons. We also, there are particular temptations to which different groups in the church are prone. And so the beauty of this passage is that we get to look at some very particular directives. And I want you to be thinking when your group is addressed, hey, this is God specifically applying his word to me in my life at this situation. It's a very applicable passage, lots for us to take away. And really the thesis, if you will, for tonight is that we are called to a distinctly Christian way of life that fits our Christian identity. And that worry that we pursue this by focusing on cultivating those virtues which we most need, whether as men or women, old or young. We want to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And so tonight we're going to specifically look at what God calls older men and older women to, as well as younger women. And then we'll stop there, and in a sense, next week it'll be my, a part two. We'll pick up with the young men and keep going as we look at this seemly Christian life. So take a look with me at verse two. Verse two says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men. So I think we need to start off by just trying to figure out who are we referring to when referring to older men and older women. And we aren't given for sure clarity, but uh, here's what I would propose to you. For one, we have in Leviticus 27 different age categories given. And distinct categories in the people of Israel were considered from 0 to 5, 5 to 20, 20 to 60, and 60 plus. These were the main stages of life seen in the Jewish mind. And secondly, specifically thinking of older women, 1 Timothy 5, 9 tells us that an older woman was considered to be such when she was 60 years old. That was the age at which they were allowed to be allowed on the widow's list, if, you're, if you will. So I would say that if you want a hard line on older versus younger, you could go with 60. But if you want a softer line, I think the big idea here is that of being finished with that householding season, namely when your kids are out of the house. That's generally somewhere 50 to 60, a transition season of life where there's a distinct change from being a householder, parenting, to a new stage of life. So if um, if your kids have flown the coop at I think you can count yourself in this older category. And so listen, because this is distinctly for you. So older men. How does Paul specifically exhort these older men? Well, first he says that they ought to be sober-minded. The word here is really just the word for sober, which uh, of course implies being sober and temperate in the use of alcohol, which also then implies having a sober mind, right? A mind that's free from intoxication to be able to make sensible decisions. They're to be dignified, That is, they're to be worthy of respect, to live their lives in a respectable way. Uh, We could maybe say to be men of gravitas, if you will. Thirdly, they're to be self-controlled, not ones prone to give in to worldly lusts and worldly passions, but to have the desires of the flesh well-controlled by a mind renewed in the word. And they're to be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. And uh, these three words here, they really harken back to those three great Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and steadfastness, which really is the fruit of hope. And in this, the older men are to be sound. And remember, that's the word for healthy again. And I think it's interesting that, you know, as age progresses, often ill health comes and afflicts. But Paul's reminding you who are older men that even as life gets more difficult in these ways, even as bodies become less sound, there's still a call to be sound in the faith, in your trust and hope in Christ, to be sound in love, in the love you give to the world, and to be sound in endurance through the afflictions, steadfastly persevering with your hope in the Lord. And you might notice a lot of these are really similar to those qualities that Paul pointed out in chapter one for elders. And I don't think it's... um, it's any chance that the term elder it does generally refer to agedness because these are qualities that often grow over time that lead to maturity. This is what Paul says for the older men and we'll come back and apply when we look at some similarities with what he asks the older women. So he starts off saying, look at verse three, older women likewise. So he's drawing here an explicit connection to the older men, now the older women. Likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. So here's how Paul exhorts the older women. First, he tells them to be reverent in behavior. And this is actually a really interesting word here. It actually literally means to be um, holy women of the temple. That's the idea here, that their, their deportment, the, the way they carry themselves, ought to be like they were serving God in the temple. A holy life of service. Not slanderers, that is, not gossips, not bitter, harsh, and critical. Not slaves to wine, that's not given to drunkenness. And they're to teach what is good and train the young women. So just as elders have a role to teach and train in the church, so do these elder women have a calling of God to lead the young women in the church, to training. And so as we've seen these lists of the older men and older women, I want to look at a couple similarities And I want to just by way of application exhort you here that are in this category in two specific ways in light of two specific temptations for this stage of life. So the first thing is that for both older men and women, Paul says that what he desires is this life of exemplary respectability, of living in a way that's honorable, living in a way that's dignified, a way that's worthy of God. And I think this is particular to those further on in years because Often, though life ought to sweeten someone as life goes on, often life tends to sour. And there's a particular temptation to those who are aged to a sort of um, selfishness and entitlement that can lead to a cantankerousness. And the reason is because often people can fall to the lie of thinking, you know, I've done my part in the world, I've worked hard, and now I'm at the place I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I speak my mind. I say what I want, and I don't care what you think. And that is, uh, if we're taking that clothing analogy again, it's unseemly. It's unfitting for someone who ought to be a model of maturity and reverent dignity. And when one gives into this temptation to stop caring about carrying yourself in an honorable and dignified way, what happens is you lose your ability to influence the next generation and to speak into the lives of others. And so so that leads into the second point I want to see here is that from this state of respectable honor, there's a particular call to invest in the younger generation. The women are explicitly called to teach the young women. And I think implicitly, the men called to be sound, healthy in faith and called to aspire to eldership set an example for the younger. Because here's the second temptation that often those further on in years face. And it's a temptation to stop investing in others and to live for yourself. Because again, the thinking goes, I've done my part. I've raised my children. I have worked hard in a company or wherever for the good of society. And now it's time for myself. I don't want the stress of caring for other people anymore. Now I want to enjoy my life. But Paul calls um, even those who are slaves in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you can be free, use it rather to serve the Lord. And I exhort, he would give the same call, that if you can be free from the constraints of having to have children in the home, if you've been able to be freed from the need to work full-time for a living, use it rather to serve the Lord. Further on in years, that's a time in life that you can invest yourself in serving the church, in serving the family of God and God's people, And so I think we need a greater vision than what society offers. A vision of service and of usefulness. And I would say to you here tonight who are older, we need you. You're a vital part of the church and the body of Christ. And there is a call to model a life of sound faith, of godliness, but then also to come alongside those who are younger. To come alongside to teach and train and invest That's the sort of picture Paul gives in 1 Timothy 5 again of these widows on the list who serve the church, who pray to God. And so it's one of our core values here at Grace Fellowship is multi-generational discipleship. We recognize that we need people of all ages, all, all different demographics in this church to learn from one another. And so older men and women, we need you in our small groups. We need you in our homes. We need you to have us into your homes. And this can happen formally and informally as relationships are built. We should desire to have this cross-generational pollination, as it were, because there is a call to invest. No one ever is exempted from that call to loving service of others in life. There's no graduation from the call to loving service, whether in the church or elsewhere. And maybe it's hard, and yes, there's time for rest and enjoying the good gifts of God. But there's never a time where we are not free from the call of God to love our neighbors, to love our families, and to love our churches with the resources that he's given us. This is what we need in our church, and this is a call from God to you who are older. And so if you wonder, okay, if I was going to come alongside, if I was to try to mentor someone or be involved in a small group, what sort of things would the Bible have me teach? What sort of things should I be actually even thinking about to invest into the next generation? Well, as far as from the older women to the younger women, here Paul gives us a pretty explicit program of some things that he recommends need to be passed down. So for the young women, this is what Paul is instructing Titus to instruct the older women to teach the younger women. Okay, So we have a bit of a chain there, but it's also just instructions for younger women. So you can take it in any part of the chain. And here's what he says to instruct the young women. That the young woman should love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. So the first call here to you young women, remember that's ones with families, children still in the home. The first call is to love your family. Uh, And this might strike us as interesting because, you know, we often assume that Uh, women just naturally love their husbands and children. Like that's the thing we assume that there just comes naturally. But Paul commands, no, you need to love your husbands and children. And here's why I think he says this, because here's a particular temptation to young women in this stage of life. There's a particular temptation to grow bitter and resentful against your husband and children because as we know, husbands and children can be irritating and frustrating Children especially can take a lot of work. And these family responsibilities, they infringe upon you, they disrupt your plans, they disorder your days, and do cause um, a significant need to sacrifice. And so because of that, there can be a great temptation to be almost resentful of this burden that falls upon you. And Paul says, don't give in to this temptation, but counteract it by actively loving your children, actively loving your husband, And as we were saying, God calls us all to lay down our lives for others. Remember, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. And so what's going to sustain you in this difficult calling of love? It's love. Love in the heart welling out to reach out to others. And really what this love is, it's simply a faithful commitment to their good. Commitment to their good above all. And what is good for your husband. What's good for your children above all? It's their spiritual growth in Christ. This has got to be a preeminent focus in loving the family. Before all the other good things you do to serve your home, there is a call to love spiritually such that you seek the good of your husband and children's progress and joy in the faith. And so really the calling of being a wife and a mother is a gospel calling. You're to invest in your husband to his spiritual profit. You're to invest in your children for their spiritual profit. This is no small calling, but it's high, it's heavenly, and it's glorious. The gospel call of love. And in order, if you're going to walk out this life of love, uh, there's two things he brings along that are necessary that must come along with it. He says, the younger women, let them be self-controlled and pure. Because if you don't have this, these are two things that can destroy homes. Self-control. There's many things this could relate to, but one especially, I think, is the control of the tongue. Uh, Anger is a destructive force. And anger is, uh, if we're taking clothing in, it's unseemly. It's totally contrary to the identity of a Christian who's been lovingly forgiven by Christ. You need to control your temper and your tongue But also maintain absolute purity. Purity, fidelity, and faithfulness to your husband. A sexual purity is not just a men's issue. It's not just a men's problem. Adultery usually involves both a man and a woman. And this is an area that women as well as men need to be watchful and careful to maintain total fidelity to their husbands. Total faithfulness in mind, in eyes, in emotions. And so the call here is to put away books that lead you astray, to put away fantasies and daydreams, to put away flirty interactions, to put away dressing in order to draw and garner male attention. There's a call to absolute purity, faithless to love your husband well. Self-control and purity. Next, if you look at your text there, it says working at home. Uh, this verse, you might have a translation that says something like keepers at home or homemakers. And so people often look to this verse to answer questions such as whether a woman ought to have a career, whether she ought to have a job outside the home. And uh, I will tell you, and as almost every commentator will tell you, that this verse is not given to us to really answer the question of where a woman should be located. The question is not really in this verse, the point is not really location, but it's of the labor. It's the, The best translations would say working at home or busy at home, And the point here is that Paul is teaching against a certain sort of idleness and wanton frivolity that was common in this island of Crete. The women going about, gadding about from house to house, faithless to their husbands, wandering around, living these worldly lives. It might be kind of like what he's talking about in 1 Timothy 5, where again he's exhorting um, younger women who are unmarried, and he warns saying this in verse 14, that these young unmarried women, they learn... To be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So the the, the emphasis of Paul here is this: is is, uh, is being busy, being about the good and flourishing of your household. It's seeking the good of your home. And it's being busy in it, not idle, not reckless, not leaving those responsibilities, but being diligent to be working hard for the good and flourishing of your home. And then it's up to each one of us in our own households to discern wisely what will best conduce to the flourishing of the life of my home. And that guides our decisions about career and family and all these things. What will be best, most loving for my husband and my children? But the point is I'm going to be busy about working for the good. Whether that's working inside the actual four walls or outside the four walls, the heart is, I want to do good to this family and see this family flourish. And lastly, it calls women, young women to be kind and submissive to their own husbands. Uh, I love this word kindness. Kindness ought to mark, uh, mark the whole of the life of, of a wonderful woman. Proverbs 31 says that the law of kindness is on her tongue. It's so uh, set in stone, this way of kindness, that it's a law. The law of kindness. Uh, Kindness is the most beautiful trait. And then lastly, and perhaps most difficultly, it says, submissive to their own husbands. Uh, In a few different places, the New Testament talks about women submitting to their own husbands. And I think it's important that we have a properly nuanced understanding of what's being meant here, uh, that, that we don't just fall into quick answers or quick dismissals. And so I just want to start off by trying to say what submitting to your husband is not. So, biblical submission to your husband is not obeying him like a child. It's not serving him like a maid. It doesn't mean you never disagree, give advice, or offer correction. It doesn't mean you never initiate activities or propose new ideas. And it doesn't mean you need his approval in all your decisions and activities. But here are some aspects of what it does mean. It means that you need to stop forcefully seeking to get your own way, whether that's through manipulation or bullying or conniving, not forcing your own way. It also means that you refrain from disrespecting your husband. You refrain from disparaging him in front of others and belittling him, whether to his face or behind his back. It does mean that you're called to show him respect and honor. It does mean that you're to seek his good, to seek to meet his needs, to encourage him and comfort him, to faithfully love him that he might be more like Jesus. And really this word submission, it means to sub, to come under a mission. And the mission that you're coming under that God explicitly gives to husbands in Ephesians 5 is, he says, your mission, husbands, is to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So what would it mean to come under that mission, to come under the mission of love? I believe what this means, and I think this gets to part of the heart, is that coming under this mission of your husbands to love you and care for you and nourish you in the faith is the idea of entrusting yourself to him, of entrusting your whole self to him in a sort of vulnerability where you open your heart and are willing to share your concerns, your fears, your doubts, your anxieties, your insecurities. And to entrust yourself to him in that way that say, I will trust you to love me even in my brokenness. I will allow you to speak into my life even in my frailty and insecurity. And that's something that's a battle every day. That's something that you can practice more than just once in a while. This idea that I need to trust you to actually care and love for me. And yes, there are times where that vulnerability has been um, abused inappropriately and there, there is a proper time to guard and to withdraw. But in, in a normal case, there ought to be a desire to open yourself and allow your husband to love you, even in your uh, deepest, sensitive areas. And for husbands, you know, don't take this for granted. When there is a, a vulnerability, that's a call to you to, to go deep in love and to serve and to cherish and to nourish, as Christ would, the church. That's what, when she's entrusting you to actually do your job and love her don't take that lightly it's a great privilege and this sort of life this life that paul tells titus to teach the older women to teach the younger women is a life that's so countercultural because um, it's others focused our culture tells women uh, to live for yourself to pursue your own dreams to pursue your own destiny to pursue what's good for you what's best for you uh, to the neglect of anyone else, you've always got to do what's just best for you. But the life the Bible calls young women to, and really all of us too, as we've seen, is a life of sacrifice. Sacrifice in the mission of love, to love and serve others. And this is so countercultural in a self focused world. This is the way you're called to live. And why should you live this way? Young women, why should you go to this work of seeking to be self-controlled and kind and pure and to love your husbands and children this way? Why do it? Well, Paul says that you do this because it adorns the gospel. It brings honor to the word of God. And if you don't, he says in verse five, um, that you're to live this way that the word of God may not be reviled. That is when you don't live in a way that's in accord with the Christian confession, when you live impurely, without self-control, without love, it causes people to see that and to see that uh, the word of God, it doesn't look that great. But to live in a way that adorns and beautifies the gospel, uh, there's a way that looks good. And this way of Christ that looks good to the world is a life of sacrificial love, self-control, purity, and kindness. And this life is hard. And in it, we, as we're trying to arrange this clothing, sometimes it doesn't all turn out. And sometimes we end up a bit unseemly. And that's where it's so wonderful that God's created us in this community of old and young, men and women. We're called to look out for each other, to notice our brother or sister, be like, hey, this, this way of life right now seems out of accord with what God would call you to. Last week, we looked at the ministry of rebuke, that need we have to exhort one another that we not be hardened by sin. And so we pursue these traits in community, speaking into the lives of others, allowing others to speak into our lives because we want to be a gospel community that reflects the beauty of the way of Jesus to the watching world, to live in a way that befits the gospel and to live in a way that adorns the gospel. Whatever our stage of life, whatever our role, whatever our gender, God has a call on your life, a call for you to live in a way that glorifies him as you seek to enjoy him. And this is what Christ saved us for. Verse fourteen says that says that Christ redeemed us to purify us from law, to redeem us from lawlessness, and purify a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Christ's desire in your life was not just to redeem you from slavery to sin, which is the most beautiful, glorious truth, but also to purify you, to empower you with the Holy Spirit, to make it possible for you to live this kind of life. Older men and women, it is possible for you to live in this dignified, exemplary way, and to invest in the next generation. Younger women, it's possible for you to have an overflowing, abundant well of love, of kindness, and true, um, true self-control and purity, because this is what Christ died to bring us. He died to redeem us from selfishness, that idolatry, and to renew a people who serve him with joy, who serve him with gladness, and walk before him all their days. Because the truth is, none of us fulfills this calling perfectly. If we tried to arrange ourselves, it's like a young child seeking to dress themselves. It gets all messed up. But we get to stand before God in Christ's robes of righteousness. And all this other Christian clothing we're talking about, it's all on top of this base of total perfect righteousness in God's sight that we have in Christ. So there's no need to be discouraged. Christ sees you as beautiful. And so we get to pursue this beautiful way of life, knowing that God already loves us so unconditionally. And we pursue this in freedom. We pursue it in grace, knowing that when we fall, the Lord's forgiveness is there. He picks us back up. He renews us with his spirit and he sends us on our way. And so we practice what Paul said, forgetting what lies behind. Maybe you're feeling discouraged today, thinking of all the ways you've failed. Paul says, I forget the things that are behind and I'm about pressing on for the onward call, the upward call of God in Christ. That's what we've got to be about. Don't look back, but we look forward down the race of faith, with the brothers and sisters who have gone before. And in a minute, we're gonna sing this song by faith, a song that reminds us that this road we're on, this fight of faith, this fight against the flesh, it's been done by our brothers and sisters in the past. And it's a, a walk by faith. We pursue this life of righteousness by faith. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us without direction, but that you've given us direction in your word and specific directions to us, and that your word meets us in various seasons of our life. and Lord, we thank you for the blessings of forgiveness, that great grace of the blessed man whose sins are atoned for, whose iniquity is covered, the one against whom you account no sin. but Lord, we desire to live for you, we desire to live lives that accord with the gospel, that adorn the gospel, and so we confess our need of you. We want to be prayerfully dependent on you all our days that, and we ask, Lord, that by your spirit you would produce fruit in our lives, that you would send our roots deep into your word, that if there are sins we need to repent of and turn away from, that you would work a deep repentance in our hearts but cause faith to be enlivened. God, renew us that we might live to you in new obedience, bearing the fruits of righteousness, the fruit of life. God, that you would bless and encourage the older men and women that you would help them by your spirit to live exemplary, dignified lives and grant them great influence, whether with their children and grandchildren, with those in the church in their volunteering in whatever else they're doing. Lord, would they have many fruitful years, that they would be, as your word says, as palm trees planted in the house of God. And Lord, for the young women, you know the difficulties and the particular trials, and you see and you care. You know the difficulties of the interruptions and the uh, incredible amount of sacrifice, and Lord, we pray for your grace. We ask that you will bless the young women with strength to fulfill your calling on their life, to remember that it is indeed a gospel calling, not simply a domestic calling, but a calling to advance the kingdom of Christ in this world by faithfully loving their families. And Lord, as we interact with older men and women, younger women, Lord, for those of us who do not find ourselves in these groups, Would you help us to show due honor and respect and to come alongside to encourage and exhort to love, but then to be open to receiving love and example in return. Lord, be with us. Help us to live this life by faith and to run the race you've set before us, looking to Jesus always. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.